everyone. We are back for another episode of the Houndstein Center's podcast series, Off the Stage. My name is Maddie Miller. I am the media specialist for the Houndstein Center. And today on the podcast, I get to interview the speaker of tonight's event, which is a collaboration between the Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy and the Frederick Meyer, Honor- Meyer Honors College here at Grand Valley State University. I am joined by Dara Richardson Heron, who has done so many things in her lifetime, but currently serves as president and CEO of DRH Consulting, a strategic healthcare advisory organization, also an executive coach at the Exco Leadership Group, and board director at Caribou Biosciences, a biopharmaceutical company. Dara, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real delight to be here. Good, good. Well, as we were just talking about, we are going to start off the episode today with a few questions from our BOQ, which stands for Bull of Questions. So for those listening, these are questions that um, were submitted via social media, and Dara is going to pick a few at random to answer. And for for those listening, if you're interested in submitting some questions for our future speakers on this podcast, follow us on social media at Howenstein GVSU and be on the lookout for a post asking for submissions. All right, reach in there and grab your first one. <laughs> Great. How exciting. I was looking forward to this. Yes. Okay. My first question. What's an easy item on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Mm. Well, you know, easy, it's a bit of a strong word, yes, but the for one sure. thing on my bucket list that I haven't done yet is learn how to play the piano. Okay. My parents spent thousands of dollars trying to get me <laughs> um, equipped to play the piano, and mm-hmm. at the time I just wasn't ready. I, yeah. I played other instruments, um, mm-hmm. but... For whatever reason, uh, the piano, I just didn't take to it. Mm-hmm. And now I regret it. Yeah. And so uh, the only problem and the reason, probably the reason why I haven't uh, accomplished um, my bucket list item is that, and this is not a good look for a leader, but I have to be <laughs> perfectly honest, yes. I want to just sit down at the piano mm-hmm. and magically play. Yes. And then mm-hmm. I understand that. That's not life. Uh, that's not how it goes. I have to put in the work. So yes. that's the item, uh, learning yeah. to play the piano. I love that. I was in piano lessons when I was younger. And it's funny how, like, when you're younger, I hated it. I hated being in lessons, whatever. And now I'm like, geez, I wish I could play. Like, yeah. I wish I stepped stuck to it or whatever. Yeah. So it's just funny how those things work out. So I guess I could say maybe picking it up is a little bit on my bucket list, too. But oh, do you think cool. you'll do you think you'll ever... You're going to try. Oh, absolutely. I'm yeah. definitely going to try. In fact, um, yeah. my um, my mother-in-law uh, studied at Juilliard, and she wow. plays really well. Yeah. And um, we were out looking at potentially uh, getting her a piano, and I saw that, you know, I guess it reinvigorated my interest. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, I got a card for a, a gentleman who um, teaches lessons. And okay. he assured me that he can get me playing. And okay. so I'm going to take the plunge. <laughs> yes, I love that. Well, I can't wait to hear how it goes. <laughs> um, let's do one more question from okay. our famous BOQ. Okay, I'm going to shake it up. Yes, please do. Really good <laughs> How early is it acceptable to eat lunch? Wow. 
That's well, this is a very important question. Very important uh, question to ask yeah, today, to yeah, tackle on the podcast yeah, here. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> of all the things that are happening in the world, how early it's accepted we eat lunch. Yep. Um, you know, this is what uh, we're tackling This today. is what we're talking about. But hey, you know, um, <laughs> for me, um, you know, lunch is not my favorite meal of the day. I okay. have to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Breakfast is my favorite really? meal of okay. the day. Um so, I, you know, if I'm going to be literal and answer the question, I would say you can eat lunch whenever you want to eat it. Okay. But, you know, here's a caveat. Mm-hmm. The food that you eat, I mean, yeah. if it has to be lunch food like sandwiches yeah. and soups and stuff like that, I don't think you should be eating sandwiches before 11 o'clock. Okay, what about a breakfast sandwich? Oh, That's absolutely. Okay. Oh, you know yeah. what? That's a key point. Breakfast yeah. sandwich, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You can eat that. Um, you can eat that as early as you like, yeah. but um, like, you know, but, a turkey or a yeah. sub sandwich. <laughs> yeah, going to I Subway. I think it's or kind of a violation to eat that before um, eleven o'clock. Okay. Think, you know. Yeah. Would you? Is your preferred eating method like a bit big breakfast and then like a kind of skipping lunch or just something small for lunch or what? What's your ideal? meals of the day yeah i would eat a a a fairly decent sized breakfast skip lunch and have a nice dinner okay because i'm not a morning person okay and so um i typically eat breakfast at lunchtime i was gonna say like almost later yeah 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 yeah. and because i love breakfast i can eat it at dinner time yeah but uh but yeah my i think my ideal would be to have lunch mm-hmm. um you know or a breakfast in the lunch space yeah. and then i have a, a dinner i love that what's your what's your go-to breakfast food you it sounds like you love breakfast food i love breakfast so, food so all your, of it waffles yeah. um okay. you know pancakes um yeah eggs bacon um omelets um mm-hmm. it i i love breakfast i just it's i love asking that question because i just became a breakfast person really? so i have never really been big into breakfast my whole life and I know that sounds kind of dumb but now that I wake up a little bit earlier mm-hmm. than I used to I just like I, lo- I love breakfast and I'm really into like bagel sandwiches oh, right yeah. now so that's like my go-to well so. enjoy there's a whole variety <laughs> of is. breakfast items and mm-hmm. uh and I just I love most everything yeah I, I would agree. I would agree. Well, those were great questions um, and great answers. <laughs> we're solving answers. the world's problems We here. are. Yes, we are. So you heard it, heard it here first. No lunch food before 11, okay? Yeah, it's, <laughs> From... it's, I think that's a violation. <laughs> Perfect. Well, now we're going to transition to some questions that I came up with to ask you, just based on my research of you sure. and just um, hearing, wanting to hear more of your perspective on life and your um, amazing experience that you've had across many different jobs. But first, I would love to just hear a little bit about um, where you grew up, mm-hmm. what you were involved in, and what, um, how you decided what college to go to and what to major in. So that kind of first part of your life. Oh, you're going way back. Well, I grew up in Oklahoma City. Okay. Uh, and uh, my mother and father actually were, were born there. Um, mm-hmm. And I have two older sisters and one younger sister. Um, I loved my life in Oklahoma City. Um, you know, my parents were really um, incredible parents. Um, you know, they they taught us um, how important it was to to study hard, 
to really be good citizens, and they regularly recited the mantra, to whom much is given, much is required. They had real uh, incredible expectations of us. Um, And um, I went to high school in Oklahoma City, and um, I, from as early as I can remember, I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. And so I, you know, my parents obviously supported that. And so, you know, I did all the kinds of things that one would do. You know, I, 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 I shadowed um, medical offices with, mm-hmm. with some of our doctors. In fact, yeah. my pediatrician was a woman, which was very rare at the yeah. time. Extremely yeah. rare. She was uh, in the military. She was extremely um, mean. She was mean. Uh, But we were always healthy. So I think in my young mind, I kind of extrapolated that, okay, maybe I can do this, but be a little bit nicer. Um, (laughs) My grandparents had a doctor who was there back in the day called general practitioner. Mm. And they respected this man uh, for everything. I mean, this is the kind of guy that had the black doctor bag. He came to their house. And so I think in my young mind, I, I saw this kind of dichotomy of a female um, you know, a physician who really mm-hmm. was great at her craft, but, you know, maybe life made her be a little bit tougher. And then I had this male physician who took care of my grandparents and was so congenial, and they really trusted him with their life. So mm-hmm. I decided I wanted to become a doctor. Yeah. Um, I chose my my college, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was so laser-focused. I chose my car- college, which is Barnard College, because um, back in the day, and, and you won't remember this, Maddie, but, <laughs> okay. you know, we didn't have the Internet. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm not, you know, I'm not ancient, but, uh, you know, we didn't have the Internet. <laughs> and so um, our guidance counselors in high school had these books um, mm-hmm. that were hardcover uh, some soft cover books, and in the back of them, they told you uh, about the school. But most importantly, on the back pages, it had the number of people who actually graduated and matriculated and went on to various different, okay. like um, you know, um, medical school or law mm-hmm. school. Okay, so it just so happened, yeah, yeah that Barnard um, at the time when mm-hmm. I was considering college had the highest number of matriculants into medical school. And okay. getting into medical school was a very, very challenging For sure. uh, thing. So mm-hmm. I said, all right, I'm in Oklahoma. I don't know a whole lot about New York, but if I want to go to medical school, mm-hmm. um, I want to give myself the best opportunity. Yeah. So I applied and got accepted to Barnard. Barnard uh, yeah. And uh, I had my four years there. Um, and, uh, and then I applied. I knew I wanted to study uh, medicine in a diverse place where I'd see mm-hmm. a diversity of people and a diversity of diseases. Yeah. I'm a hands-on learner. For right? sure. I'm yeah. a hands-on learner. I'm not one of those like book people. Mm-hmm. I, I have to get my hands dirty. And so I was aware of a New York University Medical School mm-hmm. um, that was associated with Bellevue Hospital. Okay. And Bellevue is um, the oldest, actually, public hospital in the United States. Okay. And uh, it's there where you see a variety of diseases and disease states. Mm-hmm. And um, But they were also associated with the Veterans Hospital. There was also a private hospital and also a hospital for people with disabilities. So I knew I would get a broad exposure as a physician. Yeah. So, I got accepted, fortunately, into NYU, and that's where I began my medical training. I did my internship and residency as Mm -hmm. well as my medical school there. And then the rest is history. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, that is such a cool story. I love hearing how people decide, like, what they, I mean, 
in a short sense what they want to be when they grow up yeah. I just feel like that has so much you know heart and passion behind it yeah. um, but I know you have a couple of degrees and what I thought was really interesting was that you have you know med- medical degrees and training which you just talked about but you also have human resources leadership and management training yeah. so why did you feel like it was um, you wanted to intersect those in your career and then I mean looking at all that you've done why do you feel like it's important for you today to have training in both of those areas you know what that's a great question Maddie um, I pretty early on knew that I wasn't going to be the traditional physician okay. you know where I had a private practice and you know I would just see patients every day mm-hmm. a part of that came about because at the time when I was studying and, and training to be a doctor and this was in the late mid to late 80s and early 90s um, uh, the health care system was changing dramatically. Mm-hmm. Insurance companies, managed care companies were coming in and really mm-hmm. changing the way that medicine was practiced. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't like it was in the days of the general practitioner with my my, my grandparents where the doctor really could make all the decisions. Insurance mm-hmm. companies and, and health care uh, companies were really uh, beginning to dictate more about what doctors um, could and could not do. I don't like that being boxed in, but more importantly, mm-hmm. I think my training at Bellevue and NYU mm-hmm. really helped me see that you know there are so many disparities in the world. There are real significant issues in the structure and infrastructure of mm-hmm. our healthcare system, and also there was a lack of leadership um, in in medicine and healthcare um, to drive some of the change management that needed to happen. Mm-hmm. So. I actually, I, I knew I didn't want the traditional uh, role as a physician, but I also didn't know what I could do back yeah. in those days. Once yeah. you went to medical school, you became a doctor, exactly. and then you put up a shingle and you had people come and, and see you, you were just a regular doctor. But I did some research, and, mm-hmm. and the most important thing I did was I... Um, reached out to one of my mentors, who's Dr. Saul Farber, who was a major um, a medical um, a leader at NYU and, and Bellevue, really around the country. And I, you know, I I asked for a meeting. I took a risk. I, I said I really need to ask him to get some insight on mm-hmm. what I could do. What other opportunities yeah. are there out there? I um, reached out to his office. He was a big man on campus, right? I mean, so yeah. I took a risk. You know, he yep. could have told me no, but he. He agreed to see me, and I told him all of the things that I was interested in. I was interested in disease management. I wanted to really make a change and impact, particularly for the people that I was seeing, like the people at Bellevue who presented with late-stage diseases. I wanted to figure out how can I get more involved in prevention, health awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, I also told him I like business. I said, I don't want to have a family and 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 never be able to see them. I don't want to be in the hospital 24-7. Yeah. I'd like to mm-hmm. work where I can have more you know, refined hours. But also mm-hmm. I wanted to learn about the business of medicine. And after yeah. I told him all of this, he says, you know what, Dara, you, you'd be perfect for occupational medicine. Okay. And I said, Oh, that's terrific. I had no idea what occupational medicine was. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know what that is. I I said, that's terrific, Dr. Farber. He says, I'm going to call my friend over at Con Edison. Con Edison is a major utility in New York City. And I'm going to tell him about your interests, and um, I'll get you an appointment. I said, well, thank you so much, Dr. Farber. That sounds very interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I had no idea. (laughs) I rushed from his office to the library. And yes, Mm -hmm. we used the library back then. (laughs) I I couldn't Google it. And I looked up occupational medicine. And essentially, occupational medicine 
allows you to work with um, individuals who are in their occupation, so occupational medicine, so Mm -hmm. Con Edison's electric company, and they had full-service medical clinics um, in three areas of the company Mm -hmm. and uh, that provided preventive health and wellness. They also provided regulatory physicals to make sure that the men who are working on the electrical uh, system in New York are healthy, Mm -hmm. Um, and then they also provided um, mental health and wellness services. Mm-hmm. So awesome. it was perfect for what yeah. I wanted to do. And not only did I practice medicine there, I was able to learn about business, um, mm-hmm. a profit and loss, uh, how to lead teams, yeah. uh, supervising. So I decided to do all of this um, because it broaden my leadership um, abilities and exposure. Mm-hmm. I'd already achieved my dream to become a doctor. Now I wanted to learn yes. other things so that I could meld the two together and hopefully have an impact in the healthcare field or, or in the world in general mm-hmm. um, around you know decreasing health disparities, um, mm-hmm. enhancing preventive health and, and wellness. And so that's kind of how it all came about. I kind of mm-hmm. fell into it, but it, yeah. w- it was perfect. Yeah, well, that gr- that's so cool to hear just that story of how you wanted to do more and, you know, whatnot. Um, one thing I was excited to talk about with you today, speaking of all of your experience, is your bio says that you recently served as chief patient officer at Pfizer, yes. um, where you played a pivotal role in advancing the organization's effort to increase diversity in the landmark COVID-19 clinical trials. So I first want to talk a little bit just about what it was like working for Pfizer in the wake of the pandemic. Oh my goodness, Maddie. Let me tell you something. Um, you know, let's let let's do a hashtag not impeccable timing on that one. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I honestly I was actually recruited to Pfizer in um, November before the pandemic actually started. Oh, wow. So long before uh, COVID was uh, in anyone's lexicon, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was recruited to be patient, uh, chief patient officer. Mm-hmm. My goal um, was to really work with a global team of advocates mm-hmm. and experts to make sure that we were focusing on the patient's needs, involving them, mm-hmm. engaging them in some of the decisions, even as early as the development of the types of drugs that we develop mm-hmm. and, 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 and you know really trying to figure out the types of research that needed to be done but the major goal was making sure that the patients were the focus of everything we did. Yeah. So, uh, and, and really working in a matrix fashion, mm-hmm. uh, fashion with everyone across the organization. So that was the plan. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I was in another role. I was at the National Institutes of Health okay. uh, working at the All of Us Research Program, which okay. um, you know also was a, a, a landmark initiative to uh, increase diversity in clinical trials. So that was another piece of, of my work that mm-hmm. I was going to be working on at Pfizer, um, the clinical trials for the drugs that they had previously been working mm-hmm. on, and then you know making sure that we involved and engaged the community. Um, my start date for Pfizer was actually February 20th. 24th. And if you might remember, yeah, that was about a week. Um, I, I was able to work one week before the world shut down. Yeah, that and is... uh, the corporate um, offices, not just Pfizer, but everyone shut mm-hmm. down. It was at the wow. height of the pandemic. I needed some time. I couldn't start in November because I had to transition mm-hmm. out of my NIH role. Yeah. So having a start date at that time changed everything. I remember the first day um, on the job, I had a, a dinner with my boss. And while we were at dinner, 
um, she got a, um, a text about um, some of the things that were happening and we discussed whether or not um, we should uh, stop travel for all of the executives in Pfizer uh, given mm. the pandemic and yeah. ultimately we did. And that was on my day one, yeah. right? I'm trying to find out where the bathrooms are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but on day one, we're faced with that big decision, and mm-hmm. that's a huge decision. And I will tell you, from that day, it seems like it didn't stop. Um, yeah. It was equal parts exhilarating, frightening, mm-hmm. rewarding, yeah. and challenging For to sure. be at a place where everyone was truly laser-focused mm-hmm. on trying to do anything uh, the organization possibly could to eradicate or or, or mitigate the damage, Mm -hmm. the carnage uh, from this virus. At the time when I first started, in the first few months, it wasn't clear a decision hadn't been made that Mm -hmm. um, the organization was going to develop a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. But very shortly afterwards, that Mm -hmm. became a key uh, goal. And so there I was. Um, my first few um, <clears throat> weeks, you know, I was pulled in because I had experience um, mm-hmm. uh, with the media. To, to I was pulled in to just talk about the virus in general to mm-hmm. allay some of the concerns and fears that yeah. our employees had, mm-hmm. right? Because this was new to all of us. It was new to me oh, as a physician. Sure. Yeah. And so I became um, a, a spokesperson about COVID-19 mm-hmm. um, for employees and others. And then once the organization made a decision um, to develop a vaccine, mm-hmm. then I became a spokesperson um, leveraging my medical knowledge, my leadership mm-hmm. knowledge, my public speaking knowledge, um, talking about the importance of vaccine confidence, the mm-hmm. importance of vaccines, and yeah. and, and specifically the COVID-19 vaccine that, that Pfizer was developing. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the key initiatives, as I mentioned earlier, was making sure that there was diversity in the clinical trial. You may or may not know this, but mm-hmm. many of the drugs that are out there and developed today mm-hmm. are, are only tested on a segment, a small segment of the population. There's yeah. a limited diversity, and as a result, mm-hmm. you don't always know how the drug may impact um, individuals. So yeah. one of the things we knew um, that had to happen, certainly after the data started coming out, that mm-hmm. many of the people who were impacted by the virus were people of color, yep. people with chronic diseases. Yep. We needed to make sure that we had enough diversity mm-hmm. in the um, individuals in the clinical trial to really demonstrate mm-hmm. to the world this vaccine is uh, effective for multiple and diverse uh, people. Yeah. So it was a whirlwind. Um mm-hmm. You know, I, it was an honor, um, mm-hmm. a real honor, but it was also a huge responsibility yeah. because keep in mind, none of us were uh, exempt from the devastating impact and, mm-hmm. and none of us really knew what was going to happen. But I can't yeah. tell you how proud I was mm-hmm. um, uh, to be part of an organization that really was the leader in, in getting yeah. us um Uh, turned around in a better direction Mm -hmm. as it relates to uh, COVID-19. So it was a whirlwind. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, that, I mean, that is really incredible. And I want to talk, I have two questions, one about um, diversity in clinical trials, but first also about vaccine confidence. Mm So um, I'm sure this vaccine confidence has definitely been an exhausting topic for you because it was it just crazy. But I was even just thinking about my own um, decision to get vaccinated. And I remember in the fall of 2021, you know, I was a student at the time. I was being required to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I 
I had never really thought about it before, but like because the media and everybody in the world was like freaking out about it, I was like, do I need to freak out about this? Like, do I need to make this huge decision? You know, whatever. And it was like, my family was constantly talking about it. People were constantly talking about it, whatever. And I ended up getting vaccinated. And now when I look back on that, I'm like, man, why was that such a big deal? Like, I I don't know. But anyways, I was just curious what you would have said to me. Like, if I would have been like, do you think I should, like, I'm kind of nervous about this vaccine. What, what was like your typical like response? Yeah, so one of the things that I pride myself on is precision engagement. Okay. And, and what that means for me is that I meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things that I would have asked you, I would have said, Maddie, what are, what are your concerns? Okay. And mm-hmm. because I can't decide, you know, for you mm-hmm. whether you should or shouldn't take the vaccine. Yeah. Uh, of course, I'm a physician. I studied the vaccine. Mm-hmm. I know that vaccines have saved um, many lives. Mm-hmm. Not long before COVID-19, we mm-hmm. had, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, you know, mm-hmm. the polio vaccines, all of these vaccines. Had we not had them, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here talking. So I understand the value of vaccines, but I also Mm -hmm. understand that, you know, people have concerns about what they put into their body. So my approach would have been very personalized. um, And I would have asked you what your fears were. And I would have Mm -hmm. done my best to be as authentic and as honest as I could, um, sharing with you information that I had about Mm -hmm. the COVID-19 vaccine and why I thought it was important for people to take the vaccine. And the main thing, you know, I would have shared with you is um, I I believe that people should have informed uh, consent or informed knowledge. And I, I probably would have tried to help you understand that you know, there are pros and cons, obviously, to taking the vaccine, but Mm -hmm. certainly what we're seeing in the Mm -hmm. body bags and the deaths, Mm -hmm. we know for sure that COVID kills people. What we don't know necessarily are all the potential long-term effects, but Mm -hmm. we do know that it is a deadly disease. And Mm -hmm. what we're seeing is that people who take the vaccine tend to have fewer symptoms, less serious disease. So I would try Mm -hmm. to, you know, encourage Mm -hmm. you that way. But my first approach would be to to try to meet you where you were, answer the fears and concerns that you had, and then share my thoughts as a physician of why yeah. I thought you should go in one direction or the other. Well, that's great. Well, I do wish I would have um, been able to know you back then <laughs> because, I mean, I think just like as a, I don't know, average person, like just the media and the different information that was swirling around, there was so much misinformation, just so much like mixed bias and whatnot. And so it made it really hard for me as like someone who just like, truly was so on the fence I didn't know who to believe who to talk to who to you know whatever and I am very glad I ended up just getting it because I was very confident in it now and back then but it was it's just so I wish I would have been able to talk to you oh well I have to tell you I you bring up a very very important point I was highly embarrassed Mm. by our industry Mm. Um, and that includes all of our major regulatory industries, as well as the physician, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the the group of physicians. On any given day, I would look at the news and see multiple different physicians saying multiple different things. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, I see how the world at large can be confused. Because if you have your, your major regulatory agencies Sometimes they were saying disparate things. Yeah. 
Then you have the administration saying different things. Mm -hmm. And then you have one physician on saying one thing and another physician saying another thing. And I don't believe that everyone had to be in lockstep. Mm-hmm. But I think when there's something as serious as a pandemic mm-hmm. that is killing droves of people, there should be a united front amongst the medical professionals yeah. whereby they consider all of the information available mm-hmm. and all the evidence and then present that to the public as honestly and authentically as they possibly can. Yeah. The truth is none of us knew all of the right answers. Yeah. And you know, I think that's another thing that, you know, sometimes leaders and, and physicians and people of authority, you know, they want to hide behind this cloak like you have all the answers. Mm-hmm. Well we didn't have all the answers. And I think that was an important message to tell the public as well. Yeah. But most importantly, I think we did everyone a disservice mm-hmm. by having so many different Opinions. I'm a firm believer of diversity of opinion, but what I'm not a fan of is is having multiple quote unquote experts saying different things and expecting the lay public to try to make sense of it all. That's how you get to a point where people just throw up their hands and say, well, forget about it. I I can't figure this out, so I'm just going to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And some people unfortunately died as a result of it. Mm-hmm, for sure. Hopefully that this whole situation has been hopefully maybe a lesson or something that we can learn. Hopefully there's no pandemics in the future, but if there ever was something similar, we'll I, see. I sincerely hope that we will <laughs> learn from these mistakes. For sure. Um, another thing that you talked about earlier was diversity in clinical trials. And I, that's actually something that, you know, I had never really like thought much about before, before reading your bio. So I'm definitely interested to hear um, why, why should I, um, people like be like care more about that why is that work important and how can I just as an average person advocate for that yeah so as I began to, to say earlier you know many of the drugs that are out today mm-hmm. um, are not tested on a diverse population mm-hmm. so let's let's take case in point uh, prostate cancer okay. you know prostate cancer tends to impact african-american males mm-hmm. um, um, and it tends to be more aggressive um, in african-american males mm-hmm. but when you look at many of the prostate cancer drugs out there mm-hmm. many of them have never been tested on this population now yeah. some of it's because um, people of color have an aversion to research um, there have been uh, historical transgressions mm-hmm where uh, people of color and and marginalized communities, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. have been used as what was the term guinea pigs. Um, You know, you have, you know, the the um, you know, the unfortunate uh, syphilis um, study uh, by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have um, instances where, you know, the cells, um, um, you know, Mm -hmm. were were taken um, uh, from, you know, uh, an uh, uh, an individual um, and, and used without her permission. Um, You have many instances where people with disabilities were um, used to test uh, medications. And so there's a natural, unfortunate distrust, Mm -hmm. um, you know, of the medical system in many communities that are marginalized. Um, So that's one reason. But another reason is that I think um, prior to, you know, recent years, um, you know, clinical scientists and and researchers haven't spent enough time 
trying to engage these populations. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned earlier the All of Us Research Program. Um, I was a chief engagement officer for that yeah. National Institutes of Health really landmark study and the goal was to um, you know um, identify a million or more individuals uh, diverse individuals and not yeah. just racial and ethnic but all yeah. areas of diversity um, to be involved in clinical trials so that we can hopefully learn more about you know lifestyle environment biology mm -hmm. and how it impacts disease mm -hmm. but you can't just wake up one day and, and and ask individuals to to be part of research you have to explain to them mm -hmm. the benefits mm -hmm. some of the benefits as you know, are one, you get to determine for yourself, your community, um, and, 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 and some populations whether the drug works. Yeah. Um, and again, it's not race-specific because even within races, a drug yeah. may have a, a different impact. So it's really more about lifestyle, environment, and biology, okay. looking at genetics and, mm -hmm. and seeing um, what's important. And it's important to have a diverse data bank in order mm -hmm. to test these things. That was That is the goal of that whole program. Yeah. Um, and we actually, one of the ways that we were able to recruit such a, a, a diverse um, cohort, um, and at least at the time, when I was there, over 50% uh, were racial and ethnic diversity, mm -hmm. and over 75% were diverse in other areas, whether yeah. it be income, whether it be um, gender, um, whether it be sexual preference. Um, yeah. um, but the point is, just like I was having that conversation with you, in order to engage uh, individuals who are yeah. not so likely to be involved in research, you have to explain the value proposition to them. Yeah. You have to understand their fears, mm -hmm. um, and you have to make it clear to them why this is beneficial. And the main reason is, um, you know, it will help better understand how your specific body yeah. responds to different diseases and hopefully um, treatments. Um, so it, it's something that that's it's very very important to have diversity. Diversity is important in all areas, but certainly yeah. in clinical trials, so that you know when drugs are developed, um, people can benefit from them. All people can benefit, not mm -hmm. just the people in the clinical trial. Yeah, that's great, and that is such a cool thing to like think about. It's almost like something that I feel like we should just like assume, but unfortunately, it's just not. So no. yeah, that is that is great yeah. work, and that's great work that you're doing for. Um, um, just, yeah, being an advocate in that area. Oh, absolutely. Um, so one of my questions I had written down for you is you've had so much different experience, you know, in different companies, different roles, working with different organizations. I am curious to know one thing you're very proud of and then following it up with one thing that was probably the most challenging that you've taken on, which I don't know if you've already answered this because we did talk about the pandemic earlier, but yeah. I mean, I would love to hear your perspective. <laughs> You know, uh, you're right, I've had a diversity of roles, but mm -hmm. each of the roles are connected in one way, and that is they further my mission, my vision, mm -hmm. my passion to make the world a better place because I'm here, yeah. right? So whether it's, you know, doing preventive health and wellness at Con Edison, whether it's um, working at Susan G. Komen, where I increased awareness of breast health, yeah. preventive um, breast health and, and wellness, whether it was at United Cerebral Palsy, where I work with um, individuals and families with severe cognitive and physical mm -hmm. disabilities and, and made sure that um, I trained doctors to care for these individuals in a um, you know a, a sensitive, uh, impactful way, or 
whether it was at Pfizer, you know, yeah. uh, you know, exposing the world to to a new vaccine and boosting mm-hmm. vaccine confidence and saving lives. Everything I've done in my life and career has been um, the theme has been making the world a better place, using mm-hmm. my knowledge, my tools, my expertise to, yeah. to, sh- to reach people and meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. You asked the question about the proudest moment. I think my proudest moment, um, you know, I, I've been proud in every job I've yeah, had. Yeah, which is I awesome. I think <clears throat> my proudest moment was um, at Susan G. Komen. Mm. <clears throat> you may or may not know, but I'm a 25-year and counting breast cancer survivor. Oh, my gosh, and, that's incredible. And so... Um, while I was there, I was able to leverage my experience as a physician as yeah. well as my experience as a breast cancer survivor yeah. to, to really impact the oh lives of, of, of individuals all around the world, right? Yeah. My proudest moment came um, after I made a decision to leave the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I announced my resignation and I got floods of calls and letters mm-hmm. and, and notes from people many of whom I'd never met, but yeah. I'd done national TV appearances and all of that. Mm-hmm. And all of the letters basically said that something I said or did or shared saved their life. Mm-hmm. I, I can't even begin to tell you yeah. um, how heartwarming and how um, you know valuable that was for me to hear mm-hmm. from people, most of them I'd never laid eyes on. Yeah. But I was able to impact them mm-hmm. in a way that saved their life. I, it, it just affirmed that I was doing what I believed that I was called yeah. to do. And I just, it's just a proud moment. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something that, that I carry with me. And I don't mm-hmm. take it lightly. Right? Yeah. Um, how you show up in the world and um, how you show up as a leader matters. And you never know who's watching you. And yeah. that's what I think meant so much from that experience because mm-hmm. these were people all around the world. They were watching me and I was able mm-hmm. to have a positive impact in their life. Mm-hmm. It really was That's cool. That's incredible, yes. I think the most challenging, certainly you know, starting Pfizer and having yeah. to meet all of my colleagues um, virtually. Some of my colleagues at Pfizer that I was able to work with, I still haven't ever physically <laughs> met because literally yeah. my whole time at Pfizer was in the pandemic. Virtual, yeah. Um, but I think probably one of my other most challenging um, experiences was when I was asked to um, uh, become the CEO of the YWCA USA, okay. which is the world's oldest and largest multicultural organization um, for empowering women. Okay. Um, it was in a, uh, the organization was in a really tough time uh, structurally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was decentralized. Um, the affiliates across the nation weren't as um, cohesive as they needed to be. And I needed to go in. Mm-hmm. at the national level and make a compelling argument for the organization coming back together um, as a team and really um, uh, creating some <clears throat> clear strategic goals and, and priorities to sustain the organization for another 150 mm-hmm. years. And, and, and you might imagine, you know, when you have 200, and, you know, 200 plus CEOs around the nation, they have different thoughts and different ideas. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a challenge to get everybody aligned, but I'm proud to say yeah. that uh, over time, Mm-hmm. It didn't happen immediately, of but course. over time I was able to do it. And I was able to do it because I involved and engaged them in the creation 
of our go forward plan. Yeah. You know, when you involve and engage people and you, you, you spend time with them and you listen to them mm-hmm. and you help them understand that you value what they're bringing to the table, it's a lot easier to get people on board. And I'm proud mm-hmm. to say that the organization is, is, is uh, you know, still doing well. Um, and uh, I, I'm really proud of, of my contribution to that. Yeah, that's great. Well, that is great to hear. I feel like um, a lot of people that I get to hear on this podcast, like always talk about like the ups and downs. And I just feel like sometimes the downs make the ups even better. And we have to have the one in order to have the other. So that's right. I think Winston Churchill um, has a a quote, mountaintops inspire leaders, Mm -hmm. uh, but valleys mature them. Yes. Oh, that's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite. Yes, that is so true. I mean, even just like me being young in my career, I even feel that way. So definitely um, keep that tucked away for the future. Um, My last question for you is actually a question I like to always end my podcast with. Um, And that is, what advice do you have for anyone who is wanting to do, I guess, something similar to you? Whether that is being a physician or being in leadership or just being an advocate, what is um, a piece of advice you could give? Yeah, I think my biggest uh, piece of advice is to gain clarity about who you want to be in the world. You have to know yourself. You have to be authentic. Mm -hmm. And if you're not 100% sure who you are, it'll be hard for people to really... Um, help you as you, uh, you know, navigate your career journey. So I would say first, try to get a clear understanding of who you are and how you want to show up in the world. And if you have to talk to your mentors, your friends, whatever, figure that out. Mm -hmm. And then identify, I always say, three to five goals toward whatever vision you have for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, work with your mentors, your peers, your professors to help you identify three to five things that you need to do like right now Mm -hmm. uh, in order to help you get closer to your vision. Um, And I say three to five because you can't do everything all at once, right? I'm a a strong proponent of of doing a few things exceptionally well Mm -hmm. um, uh, because mediocrity is not something that I think will lead to success. The the other thing that I think is is important is to not allow anybody to, you know, limit your potential. You know, I I shared with you that I was a physician. You know, there were some people who said to me, Gosh, you're already a physician. You know, why do you want to go into this leadership stuff? Yeah, I mean, this is. Yeah. But but I have I can have more than one dream. I, I you know I don't yeah. have to be limited. And people tend to try to put you in a box. So don't allow anyone to limit your potential. Branch out. Um, the other thing that I would say is don't be afraid of non-traditional opportunities um, mm-hmm. and lateral mo- moves. I mean, you know, yeah. some people feel that there's like this career you have to keep going up and up, but sometimes you have to learn in different areas and you can't yeah. be an expert in everything. So you can't go uh-huh. in as a CEO of everything, you know, yeah. right? You have to gain the knowledge and experience. And uh, I guess, the, you know, there's so many other things, uh, tips and advice I would yeah. get, but, but just the other thing that I'll add to what I've already added is, mm-hmm. you know, stop and smell the roses, right? Mm. I am not um, a good example in that regard. Um, I, uh, you know, I've I've had a lot of accomplishments in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I have been successful in a lot of things, but I haven't always had, you know, that perspective where it's really important to stop and smell the roses. Mm -hmm. Um, If COVID taught us nothing, it, it, it taught us that a life can be short yeah. And life can be challenging and things can change in an instant. Yeah. So I really think it's important to 
while on your career journey, you know, while you're you know trying to to lead and and make your contribution mm-hmm. to the world, make sure that you are taking care of yourself and make yeah. sure that you are enjoying um, the journey. Yeah, that is great advice, and we were kind of actually talking about that yesterday at our panel a little bit. But that is great advice, and I have loved this conversation. I have learned so much from you, and honestly, just so inspired by all that you've accomplished. And I'm excited to hear your talk tonight to our students. Yeah, I am excited, uh, really, (laughs) just to be here. Thank you so much, Maddie, for your leadership um, and for the opportunity to be on this podcast. Yeah, well, great. Well, it's great talking to you. Thank you for listening to Off the Stage Podcast, a series produced by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The Hauenstein Center, inspired by Ralph Hauenstein's life of leadership and service, is dedicated to raising a community of ethical, effective leaders for the 21st century. For more information on our center, our Cook Leadership Academy, or our Common Ground Initiative, visit our website at www.gvsu.edu. To keep up with our current events and reoccurring initiatives, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, all of which can be found linked below. If you liked this episode, consider giving us a review or rating so we can be found by other podcast listeners. Again, thanks for listening to Off the Stage Podcast.